Why don't you go ahead and um, take out your study guides. We're going to look at the last topic, last topic in our series on apologetics today. Now, everything we've done up until this point is really designed to um, help us defend our faith in the world. So we've looked at the challenges, some of the questions that the world would pose to us, and then how it is that we might um, be able to respond to those things and give a reason for the hope that's within us. Um, today's going to be a little bit different in that um, we're going to look at the topic of how do we identify false teaching. And this one is really designed on how we defend uh, what we believe within the church. Because it would be a mistake for us to think that the only challenge that we face when it comes to defending our faith is from outside from the world. So we're going to look at um, how to identify false teaching today. I'm going to give you some, some things that you can hopefully put in your arsenal to help you to do that. Um, so again, most of the topics we've addressed are really um, things that look at the world challenging us. This one is for dealing with stuff that comes from within. The Bible actually warns us that false teaching and false teachers will rise up and occur within the church. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter Three with me. We're going to be bouncing around quite a bit through the scriptures, so have your Bibles handy. First Timothy chapter one. I'm going to look at that just to start with. First Timothy chapter one, a couple of verses. When Paul introduces his letter to Timothy, the, the letter of First Timothy and then Second Timothy are the last two letters that the apostle Paul wrote. It's shortly before his death. He's in prison. He writes them to his young protege protege, Timothy, and in some respects is handing the baton off to Timothy to pick up where Paul had left off. And he begins the introduction to his letter, 1 Timothy, with this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, which is where Timothy currently was, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And so Paul starts off his letter to, first, or to Timothy to tell him, I'm leaving you there to prevent certain men from teaching false doctrine. In fact, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are all about Paul challenging Timothy to maintain sound doctrine within the church. In some respects, he established Timothy as a watchman. Pay attention to what's going on, Timothy, and prevent the false doctrine that I'm going to warn you about from spreading within the church. If you jump down to chapter 4, verse 1, he gives Timothy a glimpse into the future. He says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars, those are the false teachers, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. What he basically warns Timothy about here is that certain people will rise up within the church and try to teach things that they claim is sound Christian doctrine, but it's going to be false. Turn to 2 Timothy, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. He's talking about people within the church. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. So Paul warned Timothy that a time would come that within the church... False teachers would rise up, and in part they would rise up because people within the church want to have their ears tickled. They enjoy what they hear, and so they will actually um, give credence to those that they like simply because of what they hear. So that was the warning that Paul established. Now it began to happen in Paul's day. Paul was followed by false teachers. He would go into a city and preach the gospel, establish a church, and behind him would follow oftentimes um, individuals that would try to pervert what he had taught. 
So even in Paul's day, the false teaching existed, and clearly they did because Paul tells Timothy, I'm going to leave you at Ephesus to prevent this from happening, because there will be there some there. In fact, in some of the letters, Paul actually mentions some of the false teachers by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander, the coppersmith, and others who were destroying the church in some respects by what they were teaching. And so Paul names some names. And so that's the challenge, that... Um, defending what we believe comes not just from outside the church, but comes from inside the church. Now, there's all kinds of roots, if you will, to false doctrine or false teaching. Um, one of the ideas is that, well, there's multiple sources of truth. That's what we hear, right? There's spiritual truth, not just the Bible that we can learn from other people. Um, we hear things like, all truth is God's truth. Everybody, anybody ever hear that? All truth is God's truth. That's a popular one. Um, We also might hear this, there are many ways to interpret the Bible. I was challenged one time by a pastor on my conviction that Genesis chapter 1 teaches that um, the earth is fairly young, that God literally created the earth in six days. I take Genesis chapter 1 literally because I think that's the best way to interpret that passage. And a pastor challenged me one time and said, do you really think there's only one way to interpret Genesis 1? And I said, well, of course there is, the way the author intended it. I may be wrong in my interpretation, but there is only one interpretation for that passage. We just got to figure out what it is. And his response was, well, I don't really believe that. In other words, there's room for multiple interpretations on the same path. No, there's only one possible interpretation, and it's what the author intended, right? If you write, gentlemen, you write a love letter to your wives, you expect it to be interpreted one way, right? Nobody has the right to reinterpret that in the way that they feel. Now, it doesn't mean that there are different approaches to the text, but there is only one interpretation. We just have to figure out what it is. And sometimes scholars disagree. But that doesn't negate the truth that we can't just look at a passage of Scripture and say, eh, there's multiple meanings to this. Just figure out which one you feel comfortable with. Along that same lines, we often hear that all different interpretations all carry the same weight. They're all valid, you know. Um, how about this one? You know, what really matters is what it means to you. That's a fairly common approach within the Christian church. Is this is really important in terms of how you feel about it. What it really means to you. How many of you have heard the, the, the phrase, my truth? It's very popular within the millennial community in Christian circles now. You know, my truth. I meet with a gentleman I'm on occasion, every once in a while, who um, reminds me of that. You know, I use that phrase a lot, you know, my truth. Well, his truth might be different than my truth, but it's all based on the Bible, you know? Well, that's the idea that, well, it's just, it's what it means to me. It's how I feel when I read it. You know, when you approach the text, it should be, well, what does the author intend for me to understand? Not, what do I get from this? Okay? Another thing we might hear is that um, doctrine really isn't important. How many of you have heard that? Doctrine's not all that important. God's not interested in doctrine. Don't spend so much time on doctrine. You know, it's really about your faith and, and love and all those other things. So we shouldn't spend too much time on doctrine. is boring. Isn't it? You ever, you ever hear that? Theology, it's, it's boring. You know? There's no touchy-feely stuff about it, you know? So along with that, you'll hear people say that God doesn't care about doctrine. He only cares about what's in your heart, your motives, whether or not you believe. All of these things are untrue. And they all lead to false doctrine and false teaching because it tells us that doctrine is not important or that it's too hard or that there's too many varying opinions. And so we end up within the church struggling with false teaching. And again, it's something that Paul prophesied in the very beginning. Jesus even dealt with it, saying that there are wolves that come in sheep's clothing. Remember the Pharisees accused of their false doctrine. So it's existed as long as God's people have existed. So, how do we navigate through this? What do we do with this? I'm going to say there's two things we need to examine, and I'll mention what those are here as we go through them. And then I'm going to give us some characteristics, things that we can sort of hang our head on to help you navigate. How is it that you can identify false teaching? We live in a culture and a society right now where we are literally bombarded. You can turn on the radio at any number of Christian stations, how many different Christian teachers and preachers and pastors you can listen to on the radio. You can go to any bookstore, not just Christian bookstores, but even places like Sam's Club or Costco, and you'll see Christian books that are sold. So we have access, the internet, websites. Anybody can put anything they want up online. Anybody can teach whatever they want. 
You can find a church of your choosing. You don't like this church because you don't like the pastor's haircut? You can go to this church over here. So we live in a culture and a society where it is very easy for us to just go wherever we feel comfortable or listen to whatever we feel comfortable with or something that doesn't challenge us. So we are bombarded by this. So what do we do? As I mentioned, there's two things that we need to examine. The first, obviously, is we need to examine what's taught itself. Okay? The second is we need to examine the teachers. So let's start with this. We need to examine the doctrine, the teaching itself. And I think there's at least three characteristics of sound doctrine that I want to highlight here. The first characteristic of sound doctrine is that it originates from God's word. False doctrine has another source. Now that just that's common sense, right? I don't think I'll get any objection to that. The Bible actually identifies three sources of doctrine. Three sources of doctrine, but only one of which is inerrant and infallible. Those are two big words, kids. You want to remember these words because one of the things that I find that happens in our culture and society is that we forget theological words. And those theological theological words define what we believe. And I think they're important. When we talk about the incarnation, that means something. Okay, It's about Christ becoming man. So theological words are important. I'm going to use two of them today. Okay, Inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means that it doesn't have any errors in it. It's perfect. Okay, So there's only one source of truth that's inerrant, perfect, without error. But then there's also the word infallible. Infallible means that it's incapable of misleading. It's incapable of being wrong. Now, does that make sense, the difference between those two? One means it's perfect, there's no errors in it. The other means it can't mislead. It can be trusted. It's trustworthy. If I say something at home regarding some particular aspect of school, it has to do with the kids' schooling, um, it, it isn't necessarily inerrant or infallible. I can be wrong, and then there's been... A couple times, maybe enough on one hand, no. There's been plenty of times I've been wrong. I remember an argument I had with Katie one time about worms. I was totally wrong, you know. I didn't want to let on, but I was totally wrong, okay. So there's only two, or only one source of truth that's truly inerrant and infallible. But we're going to look at these truths. The first source of truth, if you will, is man, okay. But look at the way the Bible describes truth, if you will. We'll put quotes around that. Truth that comes from man. Look at Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a couple of passages here. But what does the Bible say about truth when it originates with man? Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but listen to this. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, says this. Therefore... No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to the festival or new moon or Sabbath day. He's talking about teaching here. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that means just things you can see, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't taste or touch or handle, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, that means hurting the body, severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. Did you see how Paul referred to teaching that comes from man? He was challenging the Corinthians, that, or I mean the Colossians, who had all these weird ideas about spiritual life, things that had come from their own head. And he calls them fleshly, elementary, which means very simple. He says that they have the appearance of wisdom, but they're nothing but self-made religion. He goes on to talk about other things about that teaching. How about what he says in Ephesians? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4, he refers to man's wisdom here. Ephesians 4, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful Scheming. So he refers to man's wisdom there, teaching that comes from the heart of some preacher or teacher that doesn't come from God's word. He says, it's like wind. It's trickery. It's craftiness. It's deceitfulness. Go back to 2 Timothy with me. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. I'll start in verse 15. But be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. But, and here's the things to avoid, these are things from man's wisdom, but avoiding worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has taken place, and they upset the faith of some. And so here, he refers to this, Man's source, if you will, as, the, as wisdom, as worldly and empty chatter. He calls it gangrene. Now, there's all kinds of other passages. I'll just read these briefly. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, Paul refers to man's wisdom as dissensions and hindrances. Also in 1 Timothy, he says that this stuff is myths. It's based on mere speculation. He says that it is always based on worldly fables that are fit for old women. I love that phrase. In 2 Peter, he refers to stuff that comes from the heart of man in terms of teaching as destructive heresies. So the rhetorical question is, can we really trust teaching or doctrine that originates with man? There are plenty, even within the Christian church, that say that we have the ability to discern spiritual truth through observation and other things. And to be real honest, a lot of Christians, what they believe comes from just what they personally think or feel not from a sound understanding of God's word. You know, I'm not alone in this, but there's a there's a fairly there's fairly solid research by Barna and others that indicate that the average Christian is only in the word about thirty minutes a week. And that's at church. And it's because most Christians don't spend time studying their Bible. They're content to simply walk about life just with what they've been taught or what they've been fed. Now, it doesn't mean you have to you know, dive in and spend hours and hours in the text, but it's just it tells us a little bit about how, what we believe. A lot of what we believe is how we personally feel or think. Well, I just think this, or I hear that all the time. One of the things I hate is when people come up to challenge me on something I've taught. I don't mind them challenging me. I want to be challenged. But when they come up and they say, well, but I feel this way, or I think this way, and I say, well, let's go to the text, and they don't want to do it. Because it's just about how I feel or what I think. I can't do anything with that. I can't argue and debate with you when it's based on your feelings or your thoughts or your emotions or what you've been taught. What I can do is say, well, let's go to a passage and you show me why you believe that and let's talk about it. When things are based on man's wisdom, we can't trust them. And there's an awful lot in Christianity that is based on man's wisdom, their understanding. I grew up in the Catholic Church. A Catholic Church has two sources of authority, God's word and tradition. What is tradition? Huh, it's what we've always believed. It's what we've always believed. Do you ever wonder why Mary is considered sinless within, within the Catholic Church? Anybody ever wonder that? It's not found in the scriptures anywhere. It's because at one point, Pope, I believe it was Pope Pius, if I remember correctly, there was an understanding within the Catholic Church that Mary, because she had been you know, raised up to this place of worship, that she was sinless. It's not something the church actually taught initially. But because the church was now struggling with it, because many believed that, Pope Pius sent a letter out to all of his bishops and said, what do you feel or think about Mary? And the overwhelming response that he got back was, she's sinless. So he began to speak what's called ex cathedra, which means he now speaks the word of God. He says, Mary was sinless, and it became church doctrine. Then went to the Old Testament, found two Old Testament psalms, and substituted the name Mary for Israel, and used that to support the fact that Mary is sinless. Where did that come from? The heart of man. It's just the heart of man. But it's now Catholic doctrine that Mary was sinless. Mary herself, however, in the scripture says that she needed a savior. If she was sinless, she did not need a savior. Look at Mary's Magnificat, where she declares um, God's glorious act upon her in the Gospels. She claims herself to be a sinner needing a savior. But because man's doctrine overrides that, we have this doctrine of the sinlessness of Mary that floats around within some Christian circles. So the first source the Bible mentions is man as a source of truth. But the Bible says nothing good about that, does it? Trickery, craftiness, deceitfulness, empty chatter, dissensions, elementary principles of the world, etc. What's the second source of truth? The second source of truth is Satan and his demons. I don't think I have to say a whole lot about that. I think we probably know that that's not a good source. 1 Timothy chapter 4.1 says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul names the source of the false teaching. So really what he's talking about here is the stuff that comes from false teachers, the stuff they're claiming to have the special wisdom about, all this truth that they're trying to declare, all the things that they know, he says really the source of that is demons, Satan himself. James refers to that wisdom as demonic. It's James chapter 3, verse 15. John actually refers to the spirit of the Antichrist, which is behind the false prophets who will be sent out into the world. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 44 with me. John chapter 8, verse 44. There's a very simple reason why we can't trust spiritual truth, if you will. I'm going to put that in lower case. That comes from Satan and his demons. John chapter 8, verse 44 says this. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the description that Jesus uses of Satan and his demons. He's a father of lies. And what's interesting, again, you look at, say, 1 John, for instance, he talks about how Satan himself dispatches into the world demons that move men to speak untruthful things. Satan is actively trying to destroy the church by sending out operatives into the world to teach false things from within. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. What better way to hurt the church than to teach from inside the church things that are untrue? That's the way he works. Satan's no dummy. So that's the way he works. Most of us are smart enough that if we hear it coming from outside the church, generally speaking, we kind of brush it off, right? Because we know it's coming from outside the church. But it's interesting how our guard drops when it comes from inside the church. We love to do things like, well, so-and-so says, and he's a good teacher, or whatever. We drop our guard, and Satan knows that, and so he sends out operatives, according to John, into the church to lie, to deceive, and to destroy us from within. So that's the second source of, we'll call it truth, small t, and obviously... It's not available or a viable source. So what's the last source the Bible talks about? Well, it's pretty simple. The final source that the Bible talks about for spiritual truth is God himself. We know that God has revealed spiritual truth verbally and in written form. We have what we call the Word of God here. The Old and the New Testaments have always been God's primary method of communicating. He used the prophets of the Old Testament both in verbal and written form. He did the same thing in Jesus' day. Jesus was not just the Son of God, he was a prophet, declaring truths about God. He spoke. His words were recorded by authors and written. So God has used both the written word and the spoken word to communicate spiritual truths, and he has made that the standard to which we are supposed to look to. Right? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You all know this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul told Timothy this. All scripture is inspired by God. That's the word for God breathed. Literally means it came from the heart and the, the, the voice of God, if you will. And it's good for, or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, or I'm sorry, adequate, equipped for every good work. The words that are used there, um, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, um, that's the idea that it teaches what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Everything we need is found in the Word of God. In fact, Peter says that. Everything is found for life and godliness and an understanding of Christ. Turn to Psalm chapter 19 with me. Psalm chapter 19, one of my favorite psalms, talks about the two ways that God reveals himself. One is through through, uh, nature and through creation. What he reveals in nature and creation, what we can observe with our eyes, are certain character traits about God. We can see that he's all-powerful. 
We can see that he's gracious and kind in some respects. We can see that he's omniscient. And so nature reveals those things. But what nature doesn't reveal are the things that we need for salvation. It doesn't reveal doctrinal truths specifically. That's really left for the second half of chapter 19 of Psalms. And that's the written word, written and spoken word. So if we look at Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 and following, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And because it's perfect, he says it can restore the soul. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure, which means it can make wise the simple, meaning take simple, or take simple concepts, make them wise, but also can take simple people and make them wise people. He says the precepts of the Lord are right. So because of that, they can rejoice the heart. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, so it enlightens your eyes, allows you to see and evaluate things properly. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. So we see that the word of God is perfect and sure and right and pure, it's clean, it's true, and it's righteous altogether. Only one of the three sources we talked about here, again, is inerrant or infallible, and that's the word of God. So the first test, if you will, in identifying false teaching or false doctrine is you have to ask this very simple question. What's the source of the teaching or the doctrine? Where does it come from? Does it come from the Bible as a source? Does it come from somewhere else? That's always the first thing you have to ask. Anytime somebody asks me to evaluate another teacher or a book, and I don't get asked a ton of times because most people don't have an interest in having their stuff evaluated. You know, people just go off and buy, the, buy a book and they read it or they find an author they like. But occasionally somebody will say, what do you think about this guy? Or what do you think about this book? And the first thing I do is I turn to the bibliography in the back. Now, why do I do that? Why would I turn to the bibliography? I want to find out where this guy is getting his stuff from. And if I look at that bibliography and I see that there's a lot of other authors that I'm familiar with that aren't very good with the word, and that's the kind of guys this person or the guys or women this guy is quoting it causes me to be a little suspicious. Okay? I also look to see how the person uses Scripture. How often does he quote Scripture? How does he treat that Scripture? I'll give you an example. There's a book a number of years ago that was very, very popular within the church, and it was floating all over the churches, all the rage. Everybody's doing sermons. We sat, Amy and I sat in church one day, and uh, this couple came in, and I'd seen in the bulletin that there were some Bible studies based off that book. And the couple behind us, I don't know if Amy remembers this, the guy says, oh, there were visitors. He said, good gosh, if I go to one more church that's teaching this book, because it was all the rage, right? Well, somebody came into to New Beginnings and asked. They said, can, can we teach this book? And I told him, I said, well, tell you what. Um, I'm not comfortable teaching that book, but just go home, and I want you to look up every single passage that pastor uses in his book. Just look it up and see if he uses the passages in context. Came back two weeks later, and he said, yeah, um, half of them weren't used in their context, meaning he had misquoted them. So I said, do you still want me to teach the book? And he went, nah. <laughs> now, I'm not saying there was tons of bad stuff in the book. What the pastor had to say in the book was, was fine in, in many degrees. My point was that most, most of it came from his own imagination, not from the Word of God. And so that's the challenge. Is what's, what's the source? There's a couple areas where the church is really being challenged today. One of them is in this whole idea of the spiritual formation movement. You guys may or may not have heard about it, but all this, it's this idea that somehow we grow closer to God through these disciplines like fasting and all these other things that we can do. And it's very popular within the church today. In fact, um, a Christian school, whether it's a college, seminary, or um, high school, grade school level that needs to be, that wants to be accredited, all of the accrediting agencies now, Christian accrediting agencies, require that those schools have a course in spiritual formation because it's a popular subject and topic right now. The problem is that if you look at most of what's being taught in this, this circle of spiritual formation, a lot of it's Eastern mysticism, mystic ideas. Um, the, the book Sarah or the, the, the um, book Jesus Calling by Sarah Young is a great example of that, which it involves a lot of mysticism and stuff. Um, it's all based on man's imagination. It doesn't have much biblical groundwork to it. There is a a course that it's, that's taught at Grace College where their spiritual formation course, if you look at the syllabus, 10 out of the 12 books that are required reading, 10 out of the 12 are written by secular authors. Unsaved people. What do we have to learn about spiritual things from people that don't know the Lord? So what's the source? If you want to understand if something is, is good doctrine or not, look at the source. What are they using to create their teaching? I'm going to give you one more example. I don't want to step on toes here, but Christian counseling oftentimes is filled, that, filled with that stuff. What's labeled as Christian counseling oftentimes is simply a mix of Christian teaching 
in secular psychology. There's a term for it. It's called integration. Most Christian counselors are integrationists, meaning they mix. Um, how many of you are familiar with Focus on the Family? Okay. I've always enjoyed James Dobson. I think he's a godly man. There's been a ton of stuff that I think his ministry has been very good. However, I was startled one particular day as I was driving in the car and I was listening to Focus on the Family and I heard James Dobson say, Sigmund Freud is God's greatest gift to the church. And part of it was because Dobson had written a follow-up to a, a what was at the time the leading textbook in secular institutions that was written by Sigmund Freud. And he had written a second edition of that book with, with some partners of his. And he was promoting that book on the radio. And in that, stated that Sigmund Freud is God's greatest gift to the church. But the problem is, Sigmund Freud believed that belief in God was a mental illness, a sickness. And so, as much as I appreciate James Dobson, much of James Dobson's psychology is based on secular psychology, specifically from a Freudian perspective. And if you've ever studied Freudian psychology, it's nuts. It is anti-biblical. Okay? Now, I don't say that to shame Dobson. I just say that that's the way the church is. Much Christian counseling is based on secular things. It's integration. It's mixed. But the problem is the source is man. Most psychology comes from the study of man. It's sinful man observing sinful human beings. Does it mean there's no value in it? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we have to be very careful. Just because somebody stamps Christian on something, whether it's Christian spiritual formation or Christian psychology or Christian counseling, doesn't make it Christian. Look at the source. Where are they getting their teaching from? So, let's move on. The second characteristic... The second characteristic of sound doctrine is that it reflects the authority and the supremacy of the Word of God. False teaching generally reflects some other authority. So we're not just looking at the source now, we're looking at what's the authority. It, it, it ties to the source, but 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, turn there with me. Second Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 14, Paul challenges Timothy here. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Now remember, he's talking to Timothy in the context of what gets taught in the church. And he's telling Timothy, now, in that plan and process, as you try to prevent false teaching, he says, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And that's when he then goes into all scriptures God breathed. What he's telling Timothy here, Timothy learned his doctrine from a couple of sources. One was, was Paul, but he also, we're also told in the scriptures that he learned from his mother and his grandmother. But Paul identifies here that what his mother and grandmother and what Paul taught him were based in the scriptures as the as really the, the source. So what Paul used as his authority was the scriptures. What what um, Timothy's grand or grandmother and mother used as their authority was the scriptures. So Paul spoke to two authorities there, God's word and himself as the apostle that taught Timothy in the Old Testament. Notice that when you get down into chapter 4, verse 2, the first thing he tells Timothy then is to preach the word. In other words, Timothy, use the word as your authority. Do just what your grandmother did. Do just what I did with you. Use the word as your source of authority. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, Hold fast the faithful word, the word of God, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So Paul challenged Timothy to hold fast to the word of God so that he would be able to use the word of God to form his doctrine and then refute false teaching. He's talking about the elders there. That's what the passage is in Titus 1.9. He's saying that an elder ought to be somebody who holds fast to the word and uses the word itself to refute false teaching and doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul reminded the Corinthians that authority didn't come from his own teaching or his oration abilities, but rather the gospel. Look at, second, or look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 
1 Corinthians 2. It was fairly common in Paul's day for, we'll call them teachers, whether they would be in our likes, university teachers or professors, if you will, um, and um, spiritual leaders. It was very common for them to, to develop these amazing oration skills. And they were very proud of their skills. And they used those skills to persuade people. It wasn't the truth that persuaded people. It was their oration abilities. If you can just say it the right way, you can win your argument. And Paul has something to say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's a fairly lengthy passage, but I want to read it to you. He said, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, he says, I didn't come to you with all the tricks that the orators use to make my case. I didn't come with all this superiority of speech or all this, quote, wisdom. Okay? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And, in my, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. In other words, I didn't come to you with all the flash and flair that all these orators come to you in to make my point. I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says here, the word, the testimony of God. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, Paul realized that if he came to them with all this fancy language and they basically followed him because of his oration abilities, man, what a great teacher he is, that Paul knew that their faith would be based on him and not the power of God. Paul wasn't interested in followers following him. But he says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom from God predestined before the ages for glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if, we, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified our Lord in glory. Now, you can read that passage, the rest of the passage yourself, but what Paul's point is in that passage, he says, look, the authority that I come to you with when I teach is what's found in the Word of God. That is my authority. I'm not here because of my own abilities, because of my own speech capabilities, or because of the way that I orate, or all the degrees that I might have after my name. That's not how I approach you. That's not my authority. One of the problems we face in the church today is that much of the authority of pastors and teachers is found in how they teach and in their position, not the content of what they teach. And that's sad. We live in a time in a society now where um, somebody gets a website or gets book publishing deals or they get on television and all that and they become popular because of their skills. It's not often because of the way that they teach. Now, some are. I've got my favorite teachers, too. Um, But it's amazing the number of false teachers that we see that are simply there because they speak great. I mean, look um, look at Joel Osteen. Isn't that the largest church in the United States? 60,000 people. Now, I don't think I'm stepping on any toes here, but the man is a false teacher. He's a false prophet. Books sold through the roof packs in the stadium, um, shows up on the Today Show because he speaks for America. Um, But he's a false teacher. Why is he where he's at? There is something charismatic about him, folks. And oftentimes, that's what drives you. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's like, I didn't come to you as this charismatic leader so that your faith would be established in me. In other words, he didn't set himself as the authority. If you look at somebody like a Joel Osteen, who's the authority there? When you hear Joel Osteen talk, who's the authority? Does it come across that he's he's the authority? That he's the expert? Or does it come across that, no, I'm nothing but a servant who's telling you what God has already said? One of the greatest pieces of advice that I received was the very first time I ever preached at my, my, uh, my mentor's church. Put together this message that I had crafted, you know, and I got up there and I taught it. And afterwards, I was anxious to hear how he felt about it because I was hoping to impress him and I sat down in his office and he brought it up and he said you know you did a fine job your skills that was okay he said but you know what he just kind of put his head down and goes I really don't care what you think you just need to get up in the pulpit and tell me what God's already said and that was a blow to my ego because basically what I did was I got up and told everyone what I thought crafted a message you know and he's like I'm not interested in that not in this pulpit You get up there and you just tell me what God has already said. That's your only job. Make that your authority. When you get up there, make the word of God the authority. 
Not your position. Not your skills. Not your seminary degree. Be up there and make sure that people understand when you get done that, no, it's what the Word of God says. That's the only reason I can present this to you. So the second question we ought to be asking when we examine doctrine is, what's the authority behind the teaching? Is the authority the Bible itself, or is it something else? I'm going to share one more example from this. Um, and again, I, I don't name names just because I'm, I'm trying to be proud or arrogant or, or judgeful, but I think we just need to be careful. Um, how many of you are familiar with Beth Moore? Um, she's had some great stuff over the years. I mean, and there was a while where she was really focused on the text. But unfortunately, the more popular she became, her teaching began to change some. I've actually got a link. If you download the notes from the website, there's a link there where you can go to a YouTube video and watch as she begins to describe her teaching from what God has revealed to her personally through dreams and visions. And she does a whole sermon on that. Now you may say, well, but doesn't God speak that way? Well, again, Paul challenged Timothy here. Don't preach your visions. Preach the word, he says. And one of the problems we face in the church today is oftentimes um, false teaching is simply the result of somebody getting up and saying, I'm going to tell you what I know. God has said this to me. If a pastor or a preacher or a teacher ever says to you, let me tell you what God told me. Run. Run. Okay? It's a dangerous place to be. And unfortunately, some of Beth Moore's teaching, some of the things that she's done later in her, in her ministry career here, have been based on things that God has revealed to her in visions and dreams. She says that God speaks to her in pictures. She sees these pictures, and she preaches on those pictures. Now, not all the time, but that, that's a red flag, because who's the authority there? Beth Moore. So God has revealed to me. Let's look at the last characteristic of sound doctrine. The last characteristic of sound doctrine is that it's consistent with the whole of Scripture where false teaching often is not. The whole of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, do you ever wonder why God wrote 40 or used 40 different authors over thousands of years to write 66 different books? Because he didn't want any one man to be the authority, except for Jesus Christ himself. And so he had his doctrines deposited for us, spread out over dozens of writers, over even more books, over thousands of years, so that there was some self-validation built in. What Paul preached, what Timothy preached, what Peter preached, would match what Isaiah preached, what Jesus said. There's some self-validation in there. And one of the problems we run into is one of the characteristics of unsound doctrine is that it kind of stands out as its own thing. You have a guy who says, new doctrine here, you know, I've got something new. The Bible says nothing's new under the sun. When somebody does that, and the doctrine they're promoting doesn't quite line up with other things in the scriptures, we know we got a problem. Rob Bell had written a book not too long ago. Rob Bell was from the Emergent Church Movement. Um, wrote a book called Love Wins, where he basically promotes the idea of what's called annihilationism. Oh, when we die, if you don't go to heaven, you certainly don't go to eternal torment. God just annihilates the soul. Okay? The problem is, we have more than enough evidence from scripture that that's not true. But yet he's out there promoting that as an authority, and the rest of the church has it wrong. All other teachers have it wrong, and Rob Bell is right. That immediately becomes a red flag for us, does it not? It immediately becomes a red flag. So when doctrine doesn't line up with the whole of Scripture, when it's one passage, or one or two pastors, or a small segment, you have to be very cautious with what we see, because it needs to line up with the whole of Scripture. There's a principle in hermeneutics that Scripture interprets Scripture. And what that means is, as you're studying a passage of Scripture, if it looks a little funky or obscure, you need to compare that with other passages of Scripture to see if, it's, if your interpretation is validated. And so you're always comparing Scripture with Scripture. One of the things that Dustin and I do when we study is, um, we, you know, I'll buy a commentary, I believe Dustin does at times too, but we always do our own study. But then we turn to the commentary to see how our own interpretation lines up because these guys are smarter than we are. Now, we don't turn to them right away and just regurgitate what they say. We do our own study. But then we compare it to what they say because those commentaries are designed to help us look at the whole of Scripture. You know, I'll call somebody like an Ed DeZago. Hey, I'm looking at this passage of Scripture here. Got some thoughts on it. What do you think? Because Ed's a theologian. And he'll help me to put it in context of the rest of the Scripture. So that third characteristic is that sound doctrine lines up with the whole of Scripture. And oftentimes we find 
false teaching is a little idea here, a little idea there, a little teaching that pops up. Somebody comes out with a brand new book or a brand new video on some new thing. That ought to immediately send up some red flags. We see that um, this idea of balancing this stuff is found in the scriptures. I won't go through all this, but in places like Hebrews chapter 13, the author there says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. He then tells them that that will help to protect them from varied doctrines and teachings. Which means that we've got to, in order to be able to identify, to identify false teaching, we have to have a pretty good breath, don't we? We have to understand the word of God as a whole. And that's part of the problem in the church today, is that the church doesn't understand that. Um, Barna did some research you know, quite some time ago that the average Christian, um, only about 15 to 20% know the core doctrines of Christianity. But yet they're sitting in church every Sunday. In fact, Barna referred to a previous generation as probably, um, I don't know the best way to describe it, but the least educated generation in history when it came to the Bible. One of the reasons that false doctrine flourishes is because we don't know the word of God as a whole. So those are some of the characteristics. Let me finish this up with this. Um, We not only need to examine the doctrine. Look at those three characteristics I meant. Um, When we think about what's going on, we also have to look at the teachers themselves because we can learn something from the teachers themselves. Oftentimes, even if you're not quite sure about what's being taught, If you look at the teacher, you can be suspicious enough to know that maybe that's not right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said this to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. One of the hallmarks, Paul told Timothy, of his ministry would be, you need to demonstrate the ability to handle the word of truth properly. He goes on in Titus 1.10, he says that elders should be those who hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So basically, the point of these passages here is that ask yourself a question. When somebody's teaching something, as you evaluate them, ask yourself a very simple question. How are they handling the word? That's what Paul told Timothy. That's what he told Titus. That's what the author of Hebrews said. How do they handle the word of of God? When you get somebody that gets up to teach and they don't open the Word of God, you should question them. I love Pastor Jim. You know, there's a there's a statement that he makes. It was in one of his sermons. They had played it for years, over and over and over, on um, 880 when they would introduce his program. And it was, "Did you bring your Bibles today? Are you going to trust me on this?" Because Pastor Jim didn't want people distrusting him. He said, "Look, when you when when I get up in the pulpit." Basically, make sure I'm using the Word of God. Have a copy in your hands yourself so you can look up what I'm saying. You have to evaluate the teacher. And one of the ways to evaluate the teacher is, is this guy a good Bible teacher or is he just teaching a lot of stuff that sounds good? So evaluate the teacher based on what they do with the Word of God. Um, I'm always curious when I look at um, different authors that I'm all that familiar with. I look at how they handle certain passages of Scripture. Because if I can watch how they handle the Word... That helps me to understand whether or not I can trust them. Which means that there are times, when I look at somebody like an Ed DeZago, um, the reason I trust Ed so much, because I watch him handle the word. Which means in those areas where maybe I'm not so sure about a particular teaching or something that's being taught, I can trust Ed because I know how he handles the word of God. If I didn't know how he handled the word of God, I couldn't trust what he said. So in those areas where we're not quite sure doctrinally what's being taught, if we can trust the teacher because of how they handle the word, it's more likely we should be able to trust him on that. I've mentioned my own mentor before. I'm going to mention him again, Pastor Krenz. One of the things I learned from him very early on in life was um, I'd sit in his office and I'd want him to answer a question of mine. And, and I got tired of him using the Bible all the time. And so I asked him one time very specifically. I said, Pastor Krenz, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want you to pull that Bible off the shelf. I just want you to give me your answer to this. So he looked at me and kind of said, all right, shoot. So I basically laid out my question for him, and he sat there, and he kind of looked off into space, and I think he might have even rubbed his chin a little bit. He went, hmm, you know, that reminds me of a passage. And he reached up on his shelf, grabbed his Bible, put it down on his desk, and he proceeded to explain to me a passage of Scripture. That was the last time I ever asked Pastor Krenz to give me one of his own answers. I began to walk into his office every Monday, and when we would sit down, I began to expect that what he was going to do was give me a Bible answer. 
The reason I have trusted that man for so many years of my life is because I watch how he responds. He's not interested in giving me his opinion. He opens the word of God and tells me what it says. So evaluate the teacher based on how they handle the word of God. I'll give you these three passages. I'll let you look them up. I'll just summarize this last section with this. Sometimes there are telltale signs of what of false teachers. The scriptures tell us all kinds of them here. Titus 1.11 says that they're rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that they are unprincipled men. Romans chapter 16 says to keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned. In other words, oftentimes false teachers are those that stand up, stand up puff up their chest, and um, you can sort of tell there's just something off. There's just something off, the way that they behave, what their motives are. There was an example not too long ago from an individual out at a church in North Carolina that built a $16 million mansion. I have no problem with somebody building a $16 million mansion. But what's interesting is um, he made a pretty big deal out of how he doesn't get paid by his church. But you know what's interesting is that he set up all these preaching engagements where he would go to another church and preach and got paid fairly substantially. And then he made an agreement with that pastor to come to his church and preach. So in other words, he can stand up and say, hey, I can build a $16 million mansion because I'm not doing it off the backs of my church. They're not financing this. But the way that he got around that was setting up these preaching agreements where, you know what, tell you what, I'll come to your church and preach. You pay me. You come to my church then and we'll pay you. So you can now argue, I'm not making money off the church to build my $60 million mansion. I'm making it off of everybody else's church. And there's a lot of pastors, especially within that word faith movement, that do exactly that. They set up these circuits where they go to church, to church, to church, a little circle, and they're becoming filthy rich. But they can say, we're not receiving a salary from our church. That's deceptive. Okay? So there are certain telltale signs at times. You watch the whole word faith movement on television. You watch the Benny Hins and the others. And every other word out of their mouth is to give that seed faith gift. That ought to tell us something. Paul warned us about that kind of stuff. Um, guys who are in the pulpit that end up getting kicked out of the pulpit for whatever reason, that end up back in the pulpit in short order, just somewhere else. You know, um, The pastor of Mars Hills out in... Um, uh, what the Driscoll is his last name, um, got kicked out for some of the stuff he was doing in his church, some nasty, nasty stuff. What's he do? He moves down to Dallas or Texas, wherever it was, and starts another church with the same leadership group, didn't learn his lesson. You know, um, There's certain telltale signs. So we evaluate not just the doctrine, but evaluate the teachers. And one of the best ways to evaluate the teachers is to look at their lifestyle and who they are, but also to look at what their authority is. When they get up in the pulpit, what's their heart? I hope you guys can see in me that my heart is to tell you what's written in the book. Um, but I don't expect you just to take my word for it. I want to be evaluated. You know, Nothing would break my heart more than having people just say, hey, Mike says this, or Mike believes this, and not evaluate and look at who I am and what I do. So I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. I'll leave you with those things. Um, I'm hoping that... Um, you know, the series that we've done here has kind of helped us to basically defend our faith, but especially this last one, because I think it's important. We can't be numb to the fact that even within the church, false teaching exists, but there are some things that we can do to kind of navigate that. But um, anyway, um, there's some other little notes here and there in the notes that I've got here. If you're interested, you can download them online. But 